Hey folks, Ryan Kennedy here. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited for today's interview because I'm chatting with one of the leading experts in the world on the topics of the epigenome, longevity, and nutraceuticals. And genetic testing has come a long way in terms of availability and, and pricing. You know, now it's very consumer friendly. And I've had some hesitations on gathering, you know, actionable strategies based on this type of testing due to this whole notion of epigenetics, which is that our genetic expression is constantly fluctuating based on our inputs, our environment, our lifestyle choices. And so it's, it's very confusing for people to interpret some of their genetic data and be able to make sense of it and understand what's set in stone versus what is actually changeable. And so I brought on Dr. Chris uh, Verberg to take a deep dive with me because he is very very knowledgeable on these topics. And we're going to talk all things longevity and health optimization today, folks. So Dr. Chris is on the cutting edge of studying really the aging process. You know, he studies a lot of evolution. He studies also the nature of humanity. He's a medical doctor. He's authored four books. He's a faculty member of Singularity University. He's a partner at the Longevity uh, Vision Fund. Uh, so this guy is very in involved in the space of longevity and anti-aging. And so I'm really stoked to chat. So Dr. Chris, welcome to the show, man. My pleasure. Thank you for the kind introduction. I want to start by having you give the listeners a general explanation, uh, kind of a, just a very fundamental understanding of, of the differences between genetics and, and the epigenome, and then this concept of epigenetic reprogramming. Yeah. So more and more scientists are starting to think that the epigenome is probably much more important for health and longevity than your genome. Uh, uh, your genome are all your genes. Um, uh, we have about 20,000 genes encoding for uh, even many more proteins um, that uh, carry out most of the functions in our cell. Uh, so that's the genome. And um, we deciphered the genome uh, around in 2003 cost $3 billion. And uh, the thought was, oh, now we know the genome. Now we know everything about aging, health, disease. And we will, we will soon figure everything out because now we have the genome sequenced and that's that. But that was in fact uh, quite a huge disappointment. So uh, looking at the genome, it was very difficult to predict the risk of more complex diseases like heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, uh, even obesity. There are hundreds of genes involved in your risk of obesity and you cannot really pinpoint one or a specific gene that plays an important role and so on. And then came the epigenome. So the epigenome is in fact the intricate molecular machinery that surrounds the genome and that determines which genes are activated or deactivated. And the epigenome enables much more complexity for organisms. Um, so you have worms living uh, in your backyard and you have the same amount of genes like humans, uh, about 20,000 genes. But of course, we are much more complex than those worms because our epigenome enables much better fine tuning of, of gene activity, which genes are switched on or off during specific periods of time and so on. So um, we see that the epigenome is a much better predictor of longevity, of health. Um, there are epigenetic clocks uh, that uh, try to determine your biological age and they work, and they work actually much better than just looking at your genome. Um, so we are in this post-genomic era where we see that the epigenome, but also the transcriptome, uh, the microbiome, uh, the metabolome, the proteome, uh, the ribosome, uh, ribosomal activity, and so on, 
uh, yeah, paint a much better picture of our health, but the epigenome uh, is probably one of the most interesting uh, ohms out there uh, to assess in a more holistic way uh, our biological age, our disease risk, mortality risk, and so on. What are your thoughts on some of these companies like Self Decode and others that you know have these reports where, where they're looking at, from my understanding, the epigenome of different SNPs uh, and different genetic expressions, and then they generate all these recommendations, right? They tell you what supplements you should take, how to eat, your sensitivity to things like caffeine. What, what's your opinion on those? Are those fairly accurate? Do you, you subscribe to those and believe those are worthwhile for people to, to do? Yeah, we, we have seen in the last uh, 10 years or so the rise of uh, uh, genomic testing gene companies. Uh, let me first start there. Uh, these mm -hmm. are companies like 23andMe and yep. uh, Decode and so on, and they, they short your genome. Um, but the problem is often they don't short your complete genome. So uh, for 23andMe, for example, they look at 720,000 uh, little tiny parts of your uh, genome, uh, about 720,000 base pairs. Uh, but you have 3 billion base pairs. Uh, so you only look at a fraction of the 3 billion uh, base pairs that make up your entire genome. Um, and some of these, let's say, uh, SNPs and so on and, and, and uh, sequences can be interesting uh, or nucleotides can be interesting. Uh, for example, for Alzheimer's risk, uh, if you have, if you are the carrier of specific alleles like APOE4, uh, that it tremendously increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease, uh, nine to 19 times more risk of Alzheimer's disease if you have APOE4 allele, uh, alleles. Um, and if you have APOE2 alleles in, in your genome, that uh, yeah, is, is associated with much less uh, risk of Alzheimer's and, and neuroprotective effects yeah. and, and so on. So for that, it's interesting, but yeah, to do that kind of gene scans to determine your heart disease risk um, or other forms of neurodegeneration and so on, it's a big problem. And also they only paint a small part of the bigger picture. Um, for, um, for example, they look at a few genes involved or parts of genes involved in obesity. But uh, as I mentioned before, there are hundreds of different genes involved in obesity. So perhaps your, uh, your genomic scan or DNA test will say, yeah, according to these specific uh, sequences in these specific genes, you have an increased risk of obesity, but they don't look at hundreds, if not thousands of other regions in the DNA that perhaps can reduce your risk of obesity. So how useful is it? And a third aspect is um, even if you look, for example, at a gene that can increase your risk of breast, uh, breast cancer, uh, like uh, there are specific genes, and then uh, they say, for example, looking at that gene, well, uh, you are at a, uh, not at an increased risk of, of breast cancer, but they only look at a tiny part of the gene, you see. So they are not looking at other parts in the same gene that could bear mutations that actually increase your risk of, of, uh, of breast cancer or other diseases. So there have been incidents, uh, incidences or cases of women who did uh, they, who tested a gene to see whether there were not mutations in the gene that could increase the risk of breast cancer. And they were said, no, you don't have these mutations. But actually, they did have mutations in that gene, but uh, uh, the, the gene scan or the DNA test didn't look at those regions in the gene. So uh, there are some reservations, definitely, and, and uh, like epigenetic scans or epigenetic clocks could before be we more get, interesting. Yeah, before we get to the epigenetics, I want to unpack a few things you shared. So... To sum things up, essentially these genetic tests are taking a very small data set 
in contrast to the larger whole of your body. And so the accuracy is not very good. Would you say that that's true? Well, for uh, a lot of diseases in the case, uh, yes, it, it, it's not that accurate, unfortunately. Um, and uh, that's that's one of the drawbacks. Um, and I think yeah. that's really important to, to highlight because a lot of people, so I know individuals personally, Dr. Chris, as well as you hear about some celebrities that do this, where they get some genetic testing done that says, you use the breast cancer example. They say, okay, you have an increased risk of breast cancer. We should do a prophylactic double mastectomy where they cut off your breast tissue to make sure you don't get breast cancer. And I have always thought this is one of the worst ideas ever because for one, the genetic testing doesn't necessarily say you're 100% gonna get breast cancer. And from what you're sharing, it doesn't even necessarily mean that it's an accurate prediction that you have a higher risk of breast cancer. And secondly, if you just cut off the breast tissue, well, you'll probably just get cancer in another part of your body because now you've done all this assault to your body. You've gone through surgery. Do you have anything to share? I know Angelina Jolie made this really popular. And then a whole bunch of women started going getting double mastectomies because they got this genetic test that says, hey, you might, you might have an increased risk of getting breast cancer someday, maybe. And then they go do this very invasive surgery, which seems quite extreme given what we know and what you just shared, uh, rather than just saying, let me watch my diet. Let me uh, take better care of myself. Let me maybe take some good vitamins and supplements that are going to support my overall health and, and longevity. Uh, so I've always thought that was just crazy. Do you have any thoughts to share on that topic? Yeah. Well, a lot of, uh, of thoughts, definitely. So um, this is definitely an interesting remark. Um, so there are specific genes, uh, if you have mutations in them, we know that you have 80% risk, uh, even a little bit more of getting breast cancer. Um, so if you have that mutation, for example, in DNA repair genes, you have about 80% risk of getting breast cancer, which is quite high. And these were the kinds of mutations uh, Angela Jolie uh, was unfortunately confront, uh, confronted a bit. And, and that is of course a question, yeah, if you have more than 80% risk of getting cancer, because indeed I have that mutation, uh, should I uh, undergo a mastectomy or a breast amputation or not? Uh, that's up for the patient and uh, the doctors to uh, help the patient to decide about that. So there are definitely some genes that can tremendously increase your risk of getting uh, breast cancer or take Huntington's disease. Uh, if you have mutations in, in, in these specific genes, uh, there are actually sequences that are repeated, um, you will get uh, Huntington's disease, which is a terrible disease. Uh, it's a, a disease, uh, it's a neurodegenerative disease. So people uh, get paralyzed, uh, they make these strange uh, dancing movements, involuntary movements, and they get cognitive decline and in their 50s and so on. So for, for those kinds of diseases, gene testing is very, very useful. Um, and we call often of these diseases are called monomendelian diseases. So one mutation, terrible consequences. Um, and, and for that, that's okay. The problem with consumer gene testing is that often yeah, these tests are not as accurate as when you would do it in an academic hospital that look at the entire uh, DNA repair gene involved in breast cancer, uh, and, and not just at a, part, uh, a tiny part of that gene. Um, and so the problem in the previously uh, 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 arose from the fact that people, they, they uh, did a gene uh, sequencing, uh, but they only looked at like uh, the three most uh, common mutations in a specific gene, uh, increasing tremendously your risk of breast cancer, but they didn't look, uh, and so they said, yeah, 
you don't have those three most common mutations, so you're clear, but they shouldn't have said that because some patients have less common mutations in the same gene in mm -hmm. other regions of the gene that are not sequenced, that are not looked at, but that can increase the risk of getting breast cancer before they are 60 uh, by with 80% or so in total. So, so that's that's the problem. And it even becomes more complicated um, if, uh, if you really want to assess whether uh, most people, luckily, they don't have these monomondelian diseases uh, where one mutation can uh, cause the Huntington's disease or, or tremendously increase your risk of breast cancer. Um, so luckily, most people don't have that, but we all get cancer sooner or later or often, uh, or we all get heart disease sooner or later or uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So these diseases of aging, uh, yeah, for those diseases, hundreds of genes are involved. Um, some companies try to mitigate this by creating polygenetic risk scores. So AI looks at hundreds of different regions in the genome to determine your risk of getting a power, uh, Alzheimer's disease or heart disease or type 2 diabetes. Um, but yeah, it's not that accurate yet. And actually, scientists have found that the epigenome uh, probably is more uh, interesting uh, regarding making, uh, let's say, assessments of, of uh, your health and longevity. So those genetic variations you explained that they use in academic hospitals to test and assess your risk of potentially getting, let's, let's say in this example, breast cancer, those, gene those um, genetic alterations that they're measuring, they're set in stone or are those things that let's say someone were to hear this data, they were to go and make all sorts of changes to their lifestyle, to their diet, to their routines and complete 180 their life. So they're much healthier. Then they went back in for this testing would it show a difference in those genetic alterations or are those set in stone for their whole life? Yeah, that's a great question. So some of them are uh, set in stone. Like if you have like that number of repeats in a, a specific gene uh, that can, that will, you will get Huntington's disease when you're in your fifties. So that's a quite set in stone. Um, uh, other mutations in uh, other genes uh, cause mucoviscidosis uh, and, and so on, or cystic fibrosis. And um, so we know if you have that mutation, you will develop cystic fibrosis and you will likely die in, when you're in your thirties, uh, even with the best treatments and so on. Others are less set in stone, like the mutation of Angela Jolie. Um, she had a mutation in a uh, DNA repair gene. Um, and we, we know if you have that mutation, there is like 80% uh, risk you get uh, breast cancer uh, in your fifties or sixties. So 80% risk then it's up to the patient to decide, uh, yeah, do I want to uh, undergo a mastectomy or not? Um, and then there are these mutations like uh, the, uh, the one I previously talked about, like APOE4, it uh, significantly increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease, but that doesn't mean if you have like an APOE4 allele uh, or, or version of, of uh, in your genome that you will get Alzheimer's disease. If you eat healthy, if you uh, exercise, if you reduce stress, if you sleep well, it's quite likely you won't get Alzheimer's disease. And but that's actually always, the case. You'll yeah. always have that same allele, that APOE4, that never goes away. Is that what you're saying? Indeed, that stays okay. there. Uh, of course, we see with the epigenome, sometimes you can switch on or off genes. But yeah, uh, yeah with APOE4, we do know, unfortunately, that it uh, significantly increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but uh, if you eat healthy and you exercise and so on, you can uh, yeah, also significantly reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease, uh, even being a carrier of, of, of that gene. Um, and then, yeah, if you speak... Uh, 
about heart disease in general and, um, and type 2 diabetes and so on. So all these chronic lifestyle and aging-related diseases, we see a very strong lifestyle component there. Uh, actually, if you look at longevity, how much of uh, your lifespan is determined by the genome, we see it's about 25% of your uh, variation in lifespan is determined by genes and about 75% of how long you will live is determined by life uh, by lifestyle. Uh, so it's 25% genetics, 75% lifestyle. Um, unless you're a centenarian, so we see for people who become 100 years or older, it's often uh, there is a very strong genetic component. So that also leads to a lot of misunderstandings. So people saying, look at uh, this lady who became 110 years old and she smoked and she ate hamburgers and uh, yeah. drank soda the whole time. But yeah, she is one of the very rare human specimens that have a very, uh, let's say, strong gene, strong genetic component tied to their lifespan. But for most normal people like you and me, with average lifespans of around 80 years, it's 75% lifestyle that determines your uh, the variation in lifespan and about 25% is genetics, which is not all. Yeah, and that's something I've heard time and time again as more data has come out about the predominance being your lifestyle choices and the minority percentage of outcome being your genetic you know, predestined genetics. But what I'm confused of, maybe you can clear this up for me, Dr. Chris. So if you have these genetic um, alterations, uh, let's go back to the breast cancer example, and someone gets this test done properly, like you said, going to some sort of clinic or hospital that does the full, the full workup, right? And they say, hey, based on the full workup, you have this genetic alteration, we think there's an 80% chance you will get breast cancer in your 50s or 60s. How can they say that there's going to be an 80% chance when you just shared with me, it's only a 25%, uh, it's only playing 25% role, 75% is lifestyle. So it seems like the numbers aren't adding up to me. If like 75% of your likelihood of getting breast cancer is your lifestyle, how are they going to claim that you're 80% likely to get this disease based on the genetic component that's only making up 25% of your likelihood? You see what I mean? Yes, that's a great question. Um, the reason is that some people are unfortunate to be born with specific mutations that tremendously increase the risk of specific diseases, but luckily most people don't have those mutations. So Angela Jolie, she was very unfortunate to have that specific mutation in a very important gene that uh, rep uh, repairs damaged DNA. So she has faulty DNA repair, which is not normal. Uh, so 99% um, uh, of people don't have that kind of mutation and so on. So it's same for Huntington's disease. Um, if you're born with that mutation, it runs in families. So it's terrible actually, because uh, sometimes you have to say to patients, uh, your mother uh, had uh, this terrible disease. She died when she was in her fifties. And you, uh, you have one uh, chance in two to also have that disease because the way it's inherited, it's 50% risk. If you're, uh, one of your parents has the disease, you have 50% risk of also having the disease and die in, in, uh, in your 50s in, in a quite, uh, uh, let's say, unfavorable uh, uh, way. So, um, so but th those are like rare, more rare mutations that most of, uh, of the population luckily don't have. And for them, it's like 75% uh, yeah, lifestyle and 25% is genetics. If you have like, say, a normal set of genes and you're not burdened with these specific mutations that uh, can drastically reduce uh, your uh, lifespan or increase your risk of specific disease. But these are rare cases. 
I see that that clears up a lot of confusion. And when someone does some consumer genetic testing, it's not usually identifying these rare cases. It's more so looking at these small data set you outlined earlier. Is that correct? That's correct, indeed. Okay. Well, this is all really helpful information and clearing a lot of things up. So then moving on from there, can you discuss a little bit about the epigenetic testing and what's available in that regard in you know today's world and how you see it useful from a clinical perspective for someone like myself if i want to help people improve their health improve their lifespan and their health span more importantly would it be advantageous to run some of these epigenetic tests to then say based on this test i think we should use this type of dietary approach these types of supplements these types of uh you know lifestyle modifications or is the is the testing not accurate enough for it to be clinically useful Mm -hmm. Yeah, the epigenetic tests are probably one of the most interesting tests out there to assess in a holistic way your risk of dying and uh, your general health. Mm -hmm. um, the problem currently is, and I can speak uh, of experience as a medical doctor, we don't have good tools to really assess your, your health, uh, to be honest. Uh, if you go to your doctor and say, doctor, measure how healthy I am and uh, try to measure in an objective way my risk of dying. Uh, yeah, your doctor will do a blood test uh, and look at uh, cholesterol and, and uh, some triglycerides and so on, which is often not that accurate. Uh, about 70% of people who end up in the hospital with a heart attack have normal cholesterol levels, as an example. Um, often, blood uh, often blood tests are normal, but while people can be very unhealthy and sick and so yep, on. So 100%. blood tests are are okay if they, they are especially good if you're like really uh, yeah, dying or you have like massive pancreatitis or uh, your immune system has gone terribly awry and you have terrible autoimmune diseases um, or you have a heart attack and or, or massive cancer uh, and so on then then these blood tests uh, can be indicative but to assess your general health and, and mortality risk it's not that accurate and your doctor will perhaps uh, measure your waist uh, circumference and will uh, measure your weight and blood pressure and that's it but it's all very crude epigenetic tests look at hundreds of different regions of uh, in in the epigenome to assess your mortality risk um, so you have epigenetic clocks and these tests um, look at uh, specific regions whether there is a methyl group or not on that uh, dna region um, and uh, they can see discern patterns in that way and uh, they can these patterns are correlated with your mortality risk for example um, and they can determine your biological age so you have everyone knows their chronological age it's your like say your real age so you can yep. see it on your passport or your id card or whatever it says uh, you know, for example you can be 50 years old chronologically but if you eat unhealthy you don't exercise a lot you're always stressed uh, perhaps epigenetically or biologically, you're 58 years older, uh, 58 uh, years old, um, meaning eight years older than your chronological age, which would be, according to some epigenetic tests, correlated to double the risk of dying. Yeah? For every eight years you're uh, older biologically uh, than your chronological age, it doubles your risk of dying, according to some tests. So these epigenetic tests are a more interesting way to assess your uh, risk of dying, your biological age, uh, your risk of disease. I must say, however, these epigenetic clocks are quite new. Uh, they're still in development. They are not perfect yet. 
a lot of them have been developed on the group level. So on an individual level, they work, but there, there is still some mean absolute error of uh, like five years or four years or uh, more or less. So they are not that accurate yet, but it's a matter of time before they become much, much more accurate and, and more indicative of your health and mortality risk and, and longevity. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so I'm, I'm curious for myself on kind of the science behind this when they're generating this biological age, because I know in the past companies would use telomere testing. And from my yes. understanding, that's been largely thrown by the wayside as not as accurate as we once thought it was. Um, mm -hmm. So with some of these epigenetic testing, are they just looking, what, what exactly are they looking at to then determine, hey, Dr. Chris, you're let's say 30 years old chronologically, we found out you're 25 biologically, how can they have such precise um, reporting on your biological age what what metrics are they using yeah the these epigenetic tests they look at cpgs so they look whether there is a specific methyl group on a specific uh, base pair uh, in your dna so your your dna um it's covered with methyl groups and the methyl groups they're small uh, molecular groups uh, small molecules uh, small atom groups um, so it's a methyl group and when a methyl group sticks to a specific uh, part of the dna uh, a lot of methyl groups actually the gene is turned off so because it's covered by methyl groups um, and if there are not a lot of methyl groups or no methyl groups on a gene um, it's switched on so it's actually quite uh, um, intuitive uh, if you think about it so the methyl groups they can switch on or off specific genes right. now you can look at a specific uh, at the pattern of methyl groups so uh, what scientists did they looked at hundreds of thousands of methyl groups uh, in specific locations then used ai or other mathematical models to discern a few hundred uh, specific locations and then seeing whether there is a methyl group or not on each of these specific locations to uh, see a pattern that is associated with mortality risk or disease risk and so on. So um, you need AI for that, or at least uh, some mathematical, mathematical models to make sense of all these uh, patterns, whether uh, there are methyl groups or not in specific uh, regions of the DNA. Um, but AI can make sense of this and can associate these patterns with uh, longevity, which makes sense because one of the probably one of the most important reasons, at least to a lot of scientists in, in the field, um, one of the most important reasons why we age is the de deregulation of the epigenome. Um, so when we get older, our epigenome becomes less and less accurate. So some genes are switched on, like pro-tumor genes, uh, oncogenes that increase your risk then of cancer. Uh, some housekeeping or maintenance genes are switched off the, uh, as we age. So that's one of the reasons why we actually grow older. Um, so we get these epigenetic alterations as one of the hallmarks of aging. And there are other reasons why we age, uh, like mitochondrial dysfunction, DNA damage, accumulation of proteins. But we actually see in recent studies where we even uh, reverse aging in animals. Uh, you make old animals younger again. That's by reprogramming the epigenome. Uh, so the epigenome is probably plays a very important role in aging. So it makes sense that looking at the dysregulation and the different patterns of the epigenome are associated with mortality uh, risk or, or disease risk and so on. Fascinating, fascinating. And so you would you would say that the biological age generated through association of these epigenetic tests is fairly accurate? Well, it's it's one of the best tools we currently have. Uh, yeah. If you compare to going to your doctor and getting a blood test, it's sure, more accurate, sure. so, that, so that's already great. Uh, 
And I think it can be already very useful. Um, there, there are a lot of epigenetic clock companies already out there. Yeah. I looked in all of uh, into What's all your favorite one? Yeah, well, the, the the currently there are different ones in development. So uh, um, so you have a rate of aging uh, clocks that uh, and you have more like absolute uh, epigenetic clocks. Um, so the, I, I love the clocks that not just use simple linear regression, which is more like a simple mathematical model to make sense of these uh, methyl group uh, uh, patterns, but uh, that use AI or more uh, complex neural networks to to assess uh, yeah to differ. Um, to really assess your biological age. Um, so that kind of clocks and also um, clocks that look at a lot of different CPGs. So not just a few hundred, but ideally thousands of, of them. Um, and uh, I think also the clock or uh, aging clock of the future is going to be one that combines both uh, yeah, epigenetic clocks, uh, transcriptomic clocks, um, proteomic clocks and uh, microbiomal clocks and so on because you have different clocks we yeah. are now talking about epigenetic clocks totally but the the microbiome also for example plays an important yeah. role in, in, uh, in aging and so on but the, if you want to if you want names yeah the classical clocks are the Horvath clocks so the green age clock is a very well-known one uh, you also have the 2013 Horvath clock uh, which is uh bit less accurate, uh, you have the Levine clock. Um, so these are a few examples of uh, uh, well-validated clocks, especially the Green Age clock. Um, but the, the best clocks are actually clocks that really look at uh, mortality uh, and, and not use surrogate biomarkers of mortality as some clocks uh, use. So they look not yeah. uh, whether people die, but they look at specific proteins in the blood that are associated with mortality and then correlate epigenetic patterns to those blood proteins, which is less ideal. Love it. Love it. So, so for people listening in, they're like, this sounds freaking cool. Dr. Chris, I want to learn what my biological age is. What's the name of the company or the website where you would recommend people go in order to get the most accurate testing that's available to consumers today? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we are actually working for Novos at the, at the clock. Uh, actually, we cannot say too much yet about it, uh, unfortunately, but we will bring out a very accurate clock. Um, it, it's based on a, on a lot of research. Um, so I, I, I would, uh, I prefer that clock. Uh, but so I Novos, think Novos is a company you're, in, you're involved with. Um, and you're saying that that's not available yet, but it's something that should be available. What, what type of timeline are we looking like? Is this a couple months out? Is this a few years out? A couple months out. So uh, we are looking in, in uh, two very interesting clocks in, in that regard okay. uh, that uh, determine also your rate of aging. Um, but uh, other clocks are, like I said, the Green Age clock and, uh, and so on. Um, and you, you can uh, get tested on, on, on those clocks. Uh, the, the Green Age clock is very well validated um, yeah, and, and so on. Uh, you have some other companies that are uh, developing also their own uh, proprietary clocks. Um, but I must say it's still a very young field. Uh, yeah. So. Um, do you like Inside Tracker? Inside Tracker is like a common one people use, and I I have mixed feelings about it. What do you think of that that biological clock? Yeah, so they look at a lot of blood biomarkers. Yep. Um, I I think blood biomarkers like looking at specific proteins or metabolites in the blood could be interesting. Um, we do see that blood-based clocks, hematological clocks, are less accurate than epigenetic clocks. Um, which makes sense for a lot of reasons. Uh, being like, as I said, the dysregulation of the epigenome is probably a very important reason why we age. So the hematological clocks are less accurate. Um, and um, also, yeah, they need a lot of uh, different uh, biomarkers to look at. 
and then correlate that with your uh, uh, aging risk. And the problem also um, is that a lot of these, uh, let's say, commercial clocks uh, are not, let's say, validated by other scientists in scientific uh, papers and journals. So that's a problem. So you have to take the people that develop that clock uh, by the, yeah, you just have to believe them. It's a black box. Huh? So you yeah. say we have this clock, but how well is it trained, the algorithm, which data set did they use? Yeah. Um, and, and how accurate is it? Was the mean absolute error? Was the area under the curve? Uh, was the sensitivity specificity? Yeah, often they don't share that. So, yeah. but it's like a whole new area. So, so yeah, just well. just to sum things up, inside trackers not using one of these epigenetic clocks. They're just using blood biomarkers and running it in within their internal algorithm. Yeah, well, I, I know that at least they, they do blood tests. Uh, they so do. I've not yeah. checked their, uh, yeah, their website uh, recently, um, but uh, when I checked a, a while ago, uh, they, they uh, use blood biomarkers. Uh, yeah, no epigenetic, uh, no epigenetic clocks like you're describing with looking at the DNA, um, you know, what trigger, what, what uh, SNPs or, you know, epigenetic expressions are on and off. Last time I checked, uh, they didn't offer uh, epigenetic clocks. Uh, okay. Could be perhaps now differently. Uh, I don't know. I should check after our, our interview. Yeah. Well, but, let, me uh, ask, yeah. let me ask you a couple of things on this. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to why I'm so so curious about this in a second. Um, with with Novos, the, the one that you're coming out with, can you give me early access to that? Yes, yes. Uh, we, I, okay. can, I can discuss with my co-founder. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We'll talk offline. We'll talk offline. Because I'm, I'm keen to get one of these tests. And are you at a liberty to throw out a ballpark range of like what one of these tests costs just out of curiosity for people who are listening or like i'm interested in doing this in a few months when it becomes available to consumers yeah well we we uh, try to keep the price as low as possible i think uh, that's very important uh, novos as a company we want to be a platform eh? enabling yeah. people to learn about longevity and uh, to get the best test offered to assess their health and longevity and epigenetic tests are an important part of that so we really try to keep the price as low as possible um, but unfortunately the sequencing is, is expensive eh? so uh, it's a very a complex process to sequence the epigenome and um, uh, we would work with specific arrays that are cheaper um, that don't uh, that only look at specific regions that are in of interest for the algorithm but uh, so these are all uh, ways that we use to reduce the price as much as possible but to answer to your question probably will be in the range of uh, about 200 dollars um which is actually not that expensive uh, that's a bargain yeah that's more great money for their car the maintenance yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever than their own body so i think it's, it's that's, a a, that's worth every benefit ratio yeah, that's worth every penny. 200 bucks is not bad for a very accurate assessment of these things. And um, with what's available at the moment, you know, like if someone wanted to buy one of these things today and they wanted to use one of these epigenetic biological tests that you outlined, like you mentioned one that was validated in 2013, you mentioned a couple that you said are pretty well validated. Is there a company you can recommend or say like, hey, they're doing pretty good tests over here. You should check these guys out. Yeah, well, currently regarding epigenetic companies, there, uh, I have some reservations about most of them in, 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 okay. in that regard, in, in the sense that, yeah, um, like I said, the algorithms are uh, not that ideally trained. Uh, they look, uh, they use like linear regression, uh, not sophisticated AI algorithms to make sense of these uh, CPG patterns. Um, sometimes they are trained on chronological age as, as, uh, as a surrogate to associate it with your mortality risk and so on. So the best clocks are the ones that really look at physical outcomes. So they look at 
uh, frailty, uh, cognitive decline, even uh, tooth carriers and, and uh, health uh, in, in general and grip strength or mortality. And uh, um, so then these, these kind of tests are very rare uh, in, in that regard. So um, unfortunately, but like I said, it, it's improving quickly. Uh, yeah. The field is moving fast. So hopefully, uh, yeah, we will definitely see in the next few years or months, even uh, much better epigenetic clocks coming about. Yeah, you're going to have to get me set up with one of the Novos tests because I'm very keen to see how this goes. And the reason I'm so also so interested in this, Dr. Chris, is because I'm working with a gentleman right now who he's done some of these uh, biological age tests with a, a good buddy of his, right? And they're figuring out their biological age and they were using Inside Tracker, which I'm like, I don't really trust the accuracy of this one, guys. They're not using actual biological measures uh, like what you're describing, Chris. They're just using your blood markers and putting it in some sort of algorithm they developed internally, from what I could tell based on their website. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the guy I'm working with has a very large bet, large monetary bet with this friend of his who's like, all right, we're going to test now. We're going to test in six months and whoever can lower their age more wins a very large amount of money. And so I'm curious what tests would be the best to run for accuracy for these guys to have a fair bet. What do you think? That was a great question. The question is perhaps they are having this bet a bit too soon um, because <laughs> even the most accurate tests, uh, which likely are the epigenetic tests, um, they are often trained on group level mm -hmm. and they are already good to assess your biological age, uh, but they are less good at assessing an intervention. Uh, so imagine uh, you have a gentleman who is 50 years old, but uh, chronologically, he does his epigenetic test and he's 58 years old. Uh, so mm -hmm. he's eight years older, biologically speaking. Um, if he then uh, starts to live very healthy and, and, and so on for six months and takes supplements and goes on a diet and exercises, and he retests after six months, uh, hoping to have lowered his biological age, that's more difficult to pull off because the epigenetic tests are in many cases not accurate enough yet. Of course, there have been in the recent few months and two years, some papers are showing interventions where people are put on a healthy lifestyle, diet and an exercise regimen, and they measure their epigenetic before and after. And we do see a reduction in, in uh, epigenetic or biological age. However, a few caveats, um, first of all, they did it on the group level. Also, if you do it in a large group of people, you analyze yeah. all this information, then the epigenetic tests can, in some cases, be accurate enough. But even there, there is doubt. Uh, sure. Uh, because recently, uh, I think like a few weeks ago, there was a study about um, the calorie trial where uh, 200 people were put on a caloric restriction diet, which is probably one of the best interventions we have to slow down aging. Yeah? So you eat like 25 or 30% less calories. And we've seen a lot of studies, calorie restriction that way extends lifespan in multiple different uh, species. And it also improves all kinds of biomarkers in humans. Unfortunately, most epigenetic tests did not work for, for uh, that trial. So these people, they did caloric restriction, um, but they were not epigenetically rejuvenated. So there were 200 people uh, and they, so just saying that the epigenetic tests are not always accurate enough, of course, and uh, especially on an individual level. Uh, um, so yeah, there, there was also a supplement with alpha-ketoglutarate that uh, allegedly uh, epigenetically rejuvenated people by eight years. Well, what uh, supplement wrote, was that? Can you say that uh, again, butyrate? It's, it's a rejuvenant um, and uh, it contains alpha-ketoglutaric acid. Uh, 
And it's also one of the ingredients we put into our uh, nutraceutical novels because there's a lot of good research around alpha-ketoglutarate uh, in the relationship to extending lifespan. Um, but yeah, um, the, the epigenetic clock they used, it's, it's uh, to be honest, not a very accurate one. Uh, it's also a black box. We just have to believe the scientists because the clock has not been uh, sufficiently validated in the scientific literature by other independent scientists and so on. So they can actually say whatever they want uh, because yeah, the, the clock is not checked and validated by other scientists. So, and, and they say eight years rejuvenation, which is uh, yeah, really a lot if you know that much more accurate scientific validated epigenetic tests cannot even find differences with very harsh or let's say powerful interventions like caloric restriction. So it's a whole new field and we have to take um, some uh, results with a grain of uh, healthy potassium salt in, in that case. Interesting. So I'm not familiar with this alpha ketoglutaric acid. Uh, is this a synthetically derived compound? Is this something that's naturally occurring in certain foods? Like where, where does this stuff come from? Yeah, alpha-ketoglutarate is a very interesting molecule. I can talk for hours about it, but I will keep it short. So uh -huh. um, AKGs is one of the very few longevity assets, uh, ingredients in the, in the sense that uh, there is a lot of science showing that AKG can extend lifespan in multiple different species, ranging from drosophila, fruit flies, to mice and so on. We also see in humans that it improves metabolism and, and so on. It has been taken already for decades by athletes to improve stamina and so on, uh, allegedly. But we do see in well-conducted studies that alpha-ketoglutarate extends lifespan. It's a naturally occurring metabolite in the body. So everyone has AKG in their body. It's, it's a fuel for the mitochondria. Uh, so mitochondria use it to, to create ATP. And uh, unfortunately, the older we get, alpha-ketoglutarate levels decline. Um, AKG has many functions in the body, like I said, improving mitochondrial health but it also has epigenetic effects. So it's, for example, a substrate of the TET enzymes, which are very important epigenetic, epigenetic maintenance enzymes. And it also works synergistically with vitamin C in that regard. So that's also a reason why we, in our nutraceutical, uh, NovoScore, we combine AKG with vitamin C and, and 10 other ingredients um, to achieve an optimal effect regarding maintaining a healthy epigenome. Yeah, you got some interesting things in this formula. I'm looking at this Novos core now. You got a little uh, vitamin C. You got some magnesium malate, uh, which is a great form of magnesium, especially for mitochondria. A little bit of amino acids like glycine. You got this uh, alpha-ketoglutaric acid. Uh, a couple of adaptogens, rhodiola, L-theanine. This is a cool formula, man. I'm going to pick up some of this. You also have um, some terostilbene, which I know is great for longevity. Uh, a little ginger root extract. And then lithium orotate. Um, this is an interesting one. One milligram of lithium, which I know is used in many um, situations for mental health issues. Uh, what, what made you want to throw the lithium in there? Yeah, we use microdose lithium. And there are a lot of studies showing that very low doses of lithium have uh, neuroprotective effects and have uh, been associated with longevity in humans. And uh, if you give it to animals, they slow, uh, they age slower and so on. So microdose lithium is often lithium in the range of 0.3 to about a few milligrams of lithium per day. While in uh, psychiatric settings, uh, lithium is also a psychiatric drug. It's a mood stabilizer. They use like 250 milligrams or uh, much more of pure lithium per day. Yeah? So, so let's say 250 times more than uh, microdose lithium. 
Um, but nonetheless, we see that microdose lithium can have all kinds of interesting health benefits. And actually, we see in regions in the world where there's much more lithium in the drinking water, we see associations with increased lifespan. Uh, so there are specific regions where there is much more lithium in the drinking water. Uh, it's uh, like in, in the micro uh, dose range. Uh, but uh, people seem to live longer. They have less suicide also, by the way, and less neurodegenerative diseases. There also have been done clinical trials in humans with microdose lithium for neuroprotection. And they saw that uh, if you give it long enough, so ideally six months or longer, that uh, there is a decline in cognitive uh, deterioration and, and uh, Alzheimer's, a risk of Alzheimer's disease or progression with microdose lithium. So it's a very interesting substance. It also has epigenetic effects. It upregulates epigenetically brain-derived growth factor and so on. Yeah. Um, it, uh, so it's a very interesting one. But also very the other cool. molecules you highlighted, um, like glycine, it's not just a, a simple amino acid. It's no. a very fascinating one uh, because yeah. it, it's one of the very few amino acids or let's say substances that if you give it to organisms, it extends the lifespan uh, due to various regions. I'm a huge fan of glycine. I've been using it before bed for years. I find it also helps improve sleep quality and has a lot of uh, benefits. And that's you know one of the predominant amino acids found in collagenous protein like uh, bone broth or collagen protein has pretty high levels of glycine. And uh, I do find that it balances out the amino acid that's predominant in muscle meat, like in steak or chicken or fish called methionine. You know, we want this proper ratio mm -hmm. of methionine and glycine. And that's why it's important to be drinking your bone broth folks and getting your collagen protein. Uh, so this is a great formula, Chris. I, I'm, I'm going to order some of this stuff today, dude, because uh, they've got a lot of good, uh, you know, anti-aging nutrients in here. Uh, it looks like it comes in little packets. Uh, do you take it with, with, uh, with food or on an empty stomach? What's your preference? Um, just, uh, it's a little power. It's a sachet of powder because yeah. if you really want to make a proper longevity supplement, it cannot really be a pill uh, because you need uh, for a lot of longevity ingredients are needed in, in, in gram equivalents and you just cannot put it in a pill. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I, I created uh, Novos uh, because I was frustrated that there are so little science-based uh, nutraceutical or supplement companies out there um, because a lot of ingredients they use are based on outdated notions and don't have a lot of science behind them. And if they do use more science-based ingredients, the doses are way too low and so on. So it's a powder in a sachet. The sachet you add it to a glass of water or, or a lukewarm tea or coffee. It's actually quite sweet because we added some uh, very healthy sweeteners uh, and, uh, and so on. And you can just drink it. You just mix it and drink it. And yeah. then that's it. This looks great. All right, I'm adding it into the mix. I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone listening in that wants to order some of this Novos core that we're talking about. Uh, definitely is a cool formula I'm, I'm, I'm game for, especially with this uh, very fascinating ketoglutaric acid. Uh, as far as the um, other things, so <clears throat> back, on the inner, uh, back on the biological age front. So what I've gathered based on what you shared is that in your perspective, there's currently no consumer uh, tests widely available that are accurately diagnosing or accurately determining your biological age. You say that all of them have their flaws for the most part of what I could go out, spend a few hundred bucks and buy today. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm always very critical. Uh, and uh, Yeah, well, so that's long, good. Um, I, I don't want to waste but, a few hundred uh, bucks if it's not going to be accurate. To come yeah, I don't, I don't want to come across as too critical. So I would say 
there are already a lot of interesting epigenetic tests and often they are already better to assess in a holistic way your mortality or age, uh, rate of aging and so on. Um, so uh, I'm a big fan of epigenetic clocks actually and, uh, and, and also even of blood tests if they are properly carried out. Um, but I'm just saying that it's a very new field, a very nascent field and the clocks need to be further calibrated uh, and made more accurate and uh, but that's happening so uh, I'm, i think the epigenetic clocks are great and i, I definitely would get tested um, but you have to look at it in the whole perspective eh? you do epigenetic testing you do blood testing uh, you measure the interesting biomarkers like three fasting triglycerides fasting insulin yep. fasting glucose uh, high sensitive crp for inflammation hemoglobin a1c for uh, glycation great excellent but uh, yeah, don't always over rely on all these tests. They still have some uh, problems. Uh, same for the DNA tests, as we discussed earlier. I have done DNA tests. I did 23andMe like 10 years ago when I, when I just appeared. I also sequenced my whole genome, like all 3 billion base pairs years ago. So it's like 100 gigabytes on oh, my hard disk. It's all the instructions to build a, to a Chris. Uh, so that's nice. But uh, I always take it with still with a grain of salt because the problem we currently have in, in medicine is we are at a new era, uh, an era of AI, uh, all kinds of novel therapies that are fascinating and we can sequence our genome, epigenome, microbiome, all great, but we get so much information and it's just still difficult to properly interpret this information. I can also get uh, I can analyze uh, my uh, my uh, bowel movements, send it to a lab. I get a yep. report. I have so much percentage uh, firmicutes uh, bacteria and so on. It's all nice and well, but what do I do with this information? Uh, firstly, and secondly, how uh, we can gather all this information, but we still have difficulty in interpreting uh, it. Uh, so if you have that kind of microbiome composition. Yeah, how is that correlated to your risk of getting uh, multiple sclerosis or uh, inflammatory bowel disease? We don't have yet sufficiently strong, let's say, correlations or uh, there yet. But it's it's uh, moving rapidly, and I, I think getting a microbiome test and an epigenome test and a blood test are, are already quite interesting. But uh, we should not over rely on it. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I agree with most of your sentiment there. I do see the value of testing just to course correct and see when things are moving in the wrong direction. Because if you do have your triglycerides, let's say, are 75 one year, 100 the next year, 150 after that, and now they're in the 200s, we know, hey, if you continue down this trend, your body is not in balance. There's clearly some sort of issue with your diet and your lifestyle, and there's, there's um, some regression going on. Um, I'm not a huge... Mm -hmm. Fan of just looking at total cholesterol because like you said there's a lot of nuance there looking at different particle sizes and a, a whole bunch of different research with the cholesterol front but i do look, look like looking at like some of the ones you shared i think looking at fasting insulin hemoglobin a1c saying hey you do have some issues with blood sugar regulation we should decrease uh, maybe your carbohydrates or your intake of some of these omega-6 fats that could be causing some of the pathological insulin resistance and then looking also I'm a big fan of looking at nutrient levels too, to see where you could be low and blood tests. They'll typically look at vitamin D3 is one of the more uh, accurate ones they could run. I found that most nutrient levels with blood testing aren't very helpful because they're just looking at what's in the serum. So running your B vitamins, kind of worthless, running your magnesium, not very helpful, but I, I do like looking at 
I do some like organic acid testing I find really beneficial that, that looks at other markers that are very closely associated. So if you're trying to test your, your B12, you might look at methylmalonic acid. And if you're trying to assess your, um, you know, the, there's a lot of examples. If you're trying to assess your other, like B6, there's a, a neutrophilic hypersegmentation hyper index. Like there's a lot of cool ways to, to get some more data that I think is all, like you said, all helpful, but it's not the end all be all. I'm still trying to get an answer out of you though, Chris. I'm still trying to get an answer out of you for my guys who are doing this, this competition, this, this bet. It's a lot of money. And so I want to, I want to get some clarity on what they should use. Do you think we could get them hooked up with Novos, you know, early access to, to me and, and just two, two other guys I work with that, you know, are doing this bet? Yeah, yeah, I can discuss it with my co-founder. Uh, yeah, we can look into that. Yeah, yes, that'd be great. We'll we'll get we'll get some early access. And so we help are you. looking into the best ways to assess your health. Right, it's a passion yeah. of ours. Yep. Uh, actually, my co-founder uh, Chris Mirabile, uh, and is uh, also a Chris. Um, he uh, he did a lot of these tests, and and actually his results are quite phenomenal uh, in the sense that uh, his epigenetic age is very low. He's like really an outlier. In, uh, in, in regarding his health as even so that the lab directors uh, were uh, amazed that he performed so well. So, um, so yeah, definitely we are big fans of testing uh, ourselves and offering these tests to everyone uh, as cheaply as, as, as we can do. And uh, so, because yeah, it's very important. Um, I do have to say, of course, regarding, for example, the blood test, I, I very much agree with what you said. So they can, some biomarkers can be interesting to get direction and so on. Yeah. Uh, the problem is a lot of blood tests give uh, false uh, safety or security for people. And they say, yep. mm, my blood test is normal uh, and uh, so I'm healthy, which is actually often not the case, especially as you said, vitamin and mineral uh, deficiencies are very difficult to track uh, through a normal blood test. Uh, some exceptions are perhaps iron and uh, looking at ferritin and transferrin and sure. binding uh, capacity and so on. Same for vitamin D. But for uh, micronutrients like magnesium and so on, uh, B vitamins, and, and uh, it's, it's very inaccurate. And yeah, um, that's a problem. Even for uh, iodine, uh, so looking at TSH levels uh, to determine uh, thyroid function, yeah. it's not very accurate. And a lot of doctors, they are not trained in this. Uh, no. When I followed medical school, you were not trained in how to interpret uh, blood tests and, and uh, to be critical about, about those results. So a lot of doctors, they uh, interpret it in a, in a very, let's say, uh, deterministic way, uh, like, like it's the truth. And if you're like just be, be above the, the threshold, you're healthy. And if you're just below, then suddenly you're unhealthy. And, and that's, we have to be much more, let's say, uh, we have to give uh, much more lenient in how we are or, or critical on uh, exactly. how we- Well, well for, people, for people listening in, Chris, I know you were aware of this, but the way they come up with these reference ranges, guys, is not looking at an optimally healthy person. They're just a, taking a segment of the population who have- no diagnosed disease. This does not mean they're healthy. This just means they don't, they don't have cancer. They don't have heart disease. They, and just to be quite frank, they might have cancer, but it's not diagnosed, right? And they take these, let's say thousand people, and then they just basically do uh, a chart where they just basically find the, the norm and they you know, rule out the outliers. And then they, they do is uh, basically run some statistical analysis to create the data set and say, here is the normal range. And I would go to argue that is the average range. That is not the normal range. And 
you don't want to be average. You want to be healthy. The average person dies of heart disease, cancer, or complications of diabetes. Like the average person feels terrible all the time and is not very healthy. And so a lot of these reference ranges for the blood work are not optimal ranges. So that's another thing that you're describing and that we need to be more critical. We need to look at what is the optimal range here, not just the reference range that modern medicine is determined as average. And there's also a lot of pharmaceutical influence that causes issues here where, you know, total cholesterol used to not be marked as high unless it was above 240, then it was 220, then it was 200. And the reason is the lower that is, the more red flagging of the cholesterol, the more statin drugs they can prescribe and the more money these pharmaceutical companies can make. So there's a lot of convolution in the whole blood testing arena. And you have to really know what you're looking at. You have to really have a good grasp on this stuff. But to drive your point home, Chris, I cannot tell you how many people have come to me for help. Probably nine out of 10 people who come to me uh, and say, I have issues with my digestion. I feel bloated and, and terrible all the time. I have chronic headaches. I have fatigue. I have no sex drive. I feel, I just don't feel well. And they show me your, their blood work and it's fine. There's no markers that are out of whack on their standard blood work because the doctor ran a CBC, they ran a lipid profile, they looked at their, you know, metabolic markers, like, you know, some of these basic things, that's not going to tell you why your gut is not working right and why you have digestive problems, right? And so that's something important for people to understand and that they're not, un they're not the end all be all, they have their utility, but they're not going to give you the data you need for many common symptoms and challenges that's, that people suffer from today. Yeah, that's that's very uh, interesting, and I, I think there's a lot uh, of truth in, in what you say there. Um, how can we solve this problem? And um, yeah. one solution is is the following. Actually, I can speak for myself. So I get, of course, blood tests, but I don't really I don't find them that useful uh, uh, in many ways. So what I do is just I take all the micronutrients, the vitamins, minerals, omega three, independent of what my test says, because the tests are not accurate and it fluctuates. Um, and, and, and so on. So what I just do, the best way is not like, uh, the, the, the wrong way would be like testing your blood and, and determine which nutrients you need according to your blood test. I think that's a very bad way. So actually you don't even have to test your blood. Just take all the micro, vitamins, minerals, and other micronutrients like omega-3 fatty acids and so on, um, take them in, in high enough doses, which are often significantly higher than what governments recommend. Oh, yeah. There's also an all other discussion why the government recommendations are often too yeah. low. Yeah. So what I do, I take like multiple times the amount of B vitamins. I take all the vitamins and minerals and so on. Um, also, uh, people sometimes say to me, but do I really need to take supplements if I eat healthy? Yes, uh, probably even more so because yeah. often people who eat healthy, they eat in a bit, yeah, uh, let's say a strange way. They eat a lot of uh, uncommon way. Um, they eat like very, for example, very plant-based food, which is, is okay, but there are, there's no vitamin B12 in, in most plant-based There's a lot foods. of things uh, missing. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you have done older people eating a lot of meat, or, uh, but there's not yeah. a lot of vitamin E in meat and so on. So it just, even if you eat healthy or whatever you eat, it's just so difficult or almost yeah. impossible to get all the nutrients for a long life. But then people say, 
how is that possible? The, how did people do it in prehistoric oh, yeah. time yeah. before they could take food supplements? Well, actually, they didn't. They messed it up too because uh, nature didn't make the human body uh, to properly absorb all micro micronutrients for a long, healthy life because evolution is not perfect. And for hundreds of thousands of years, we all massively suffered uh, from deficiencies. Like iodine deficiency has been a problem for thousands and thousands of years. Um, also iron, humans are very bad in taking up iron from their environment. If you compare it to other animals or fish or plants, they take much easier iron up from their environment. Humans are very bad at it. So iron deficiency has been a problem for thousands of years and, and, and many other deficiencies, selenium, vitamin yeah. C, etc. In yeah. fact, we are, humans are one of the very few animals that cannot make vitamin C themselves. Uh, I think so it's humans and bats. Their, yeah. Um, yeah, we have to get it from our uh, from our food. Uh, yep. So yeah, so that that shows that we are just very bad in taking it up. Why is this? Like I said, evolution is not perfect, and uh, nature doesn't care really for us to live a long, healthy life. It just wants to uh, wants us to stick a, uh, wants us to stick around for long enough to reproduce or to help yeah. in reproduction, mm -hmm. and and that and then we can wither away and die. And that's exactly. just like thirty years we have to uh, uh, move around. And uh, whether vitamin deficiency or not, the first 30 years is not that of a problem. But if you are deficient in vitamins and minerals for decades, uh, that really can tremendously increase your risk of cancer, asthma, allergies, um, cognitive decline, and so on. So yeah. I think nutrients are very much underestimated. It's not taught at medical school. I'm not going to say it's like uh, uh, it will solve everything, but I think uh, there are 70, 80, 90% of people are deficient in very important micronutrients um, that you really need for proper DNA maintenance, for epigenetic uh, maintenance, uh, for a lot of important enzymatic reactions. And it's not taught and people and governments underestimate it. Yeah, dude, we see eye to eye on that. I mean, I'm all for, I call it nutritional insurance, like just hedging your bets. If you can pay a relatively small amount of money to get some high quality vitamin and mineral supplementation and swallow a capsule or take a powder, that's easy. I'm going to do that all day, every day. Like, why wouldn't you? That's the way I look at it. Just even, and then back to your argument about uh, how we can't get everything we need from food. There's been research trying to assess this and never has anyone ever found that through what would be considered a quote unquote perfect diet of adequate calories or well-balanced diet, can you get adequate amounts of all of these different micronutrients? You just can't do it. And the other factor to consider is our food is so much less nutrient dense than it used to be 100 or 200 years ago because of our farming practices destroying our soils. So the amount of vitamins and minerals in our vegetables and in our in our uh, food today is way, way less than it was a few hundred years ago. The other thing is we need more than we needed a few hundred years ago because we are living in times of toxic stress. We have all sorts of chemicals in our environment. We have smartphones and screens and EMFs and all these different stressors our ancestors didn't really have to deal with. And so we need more antioxidant support. We need more magnesium. We need more of these things that help our bodies, help support our bodies in mitigating some of the stressors of modern life. I mean, I've done a whole podcast on this topic, uh, Chris, because people always ask like, why would we need supplements? Like supplements can't be necessary. You know, hundreds of years ago, people didn't have supplements and they were healthy. I'm like, who told you hundred years ago, people were like super healthy and like living to be hundred years old. Like once you've reproduced as far as nature and evolution are concerned, you're just wasting resources, like living into your sixties and seventies and beyond. 
you're not helping to move the species forward. Now, I would argue that you are because there's a lot of wisdom in our elders and they are obviously teaching younger people good practices and good knowledge. But as far as evolution is concerned, they want you just to pop out some kids and cut the, cut the cord because you're just going to continue to use up the planetary resources that could be used for you know, younger generations. So we see eye to eye on that, bro. I, I, like, I like that you shared that. Um, so, uh, so sorry to interrupt, but one thing to add to that, because I yeah. think it's a very important point you make there. Um, the, a lot of governments say on, on supplements, like uh, if you eat a well-balanced diet, uh, you don't really need supplements and so on, or uh, yeah. et cetera. So I don't buy this. So this no. is, uh, to give a quick example, take vitamin B12. Uh, many governments in different countries advise to take two to four micrograms of vitamin B12 per day. Um, but it's all based on outdated studies that uh, deprive uh, people for a few weeks of vitamin B12, and then they get anemia, become very sick. And, and then they say you need at least that amount to not become very sick very soon. But th that doesn't say anything about the optimal amount of vitamin B12 you need for a long, healthy life. And actually, scientists, including at Oregon University, speculate that you need at least like 20 micrograms per day uh, of vitamin B12 to reduce your risk of double strand breaks in the DNA significantly. Uh, if you get older, you absorb less vitamin B12, so you need even more. So they speculate people need 50 micrograms per day instead of 2.4 or 4 micrograms most governments advise. So same for iodine, same for vitamin D. Uh, go also, governments have been upping always vitamin D levels every 10 years or so. They say, oh, no, actually, we need more. Uh, so to be very critical towards what governments say, uh, med medicine is like a very crude science. Uh, so it's a, a beautiful science, but it's very crude. And the things we use, the tools we use to measure health and disease are very crude. And uh, don't take all these recommendations and, and studies for granted. I, like I said, I'm very critical. Uh, so you have like three kinds of, of people uh, when we have discussions about health. Uh, so you have the people who don't base themselves on any scientific evidence, which is not good. And then you have the people that uh, base themselves on meta-analysis and, and scientific studies, uh, and but they interpret them as, 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 as holy, like as written in the stars. They don't realize that a lot of these meta-analysis also have shortcomings and include studies that are not long enough or use crude biomarkers to assess immune function or health or whatever. Uh, so you have the third kind of people that yeah, are very science-based, but are so critical that they're also critical for the best scientific evidence that's out there. Because like I said, there are still a lot of shortcomings with clinical trials and medicine and health is very complex. So yeah, uh, and that often obfuscates this whole discussion uh, about supplements and, and so on, unfortunately. Yeah. Don't look for the government for health guys. That's simple as that. And the RDA, recommended daily allowance. I call it the really dumb allowance because like you said, not only is it based on terrible data, outdated research, they're also having to account for the lowest common denominator. And so there's one recommendation for everyone. And how are you going to give a recommendation for my girlfriend who weighs 110 pounds and isn't all that active and have it be the same recommendation for me who weighs over 200 pounds, almost double her body weight and is much more active. Obviously, I'm going to need more vitamins. I got twice as much tissue and twice as much body to support uh, than someone who's much smaller than I am. And so there's a lot of nuances there, too, where the government can't, you know, they, they got to give something out that's not going to over, overdose someone who's much lighter weight, much smaller, much slower metabolism, 
versus you know someone who's a larger um a larger guy like he's going to need a lot more because we're we're going based on our body weight for a lot of these of these needs along with uh different metabolic processes and and lifestyle factors so yeah all right chris well we're going to wrap this up i know it's we're going a little over here but dude i could talk about this stuff all day um i want a quick quick answer from you on this one so uh would you personally uh take tests from companies like self-decode or would you just not even bother with it well what i I did is in fact I just analyzed my entire genome, so all okay. three billion base pairs. So which is uh, that costed in two thousand and three three billion dollars to do so yeah. to sequence one genome. Now you can do it for two hundred dollars or so, probably even less. Uh, while we having this interview, so uh, I would yeah try to sequence your whole genome and then uh, run uh, algorithms on it to analyze it uh, and so on. Um, but uh, actually, I would not even rely too much on the genome uh, or DNA scan, I would look at my epigenome. I think that's much more interesting epigenetic tests than uh, DNA tests. So to, to sum things up, you for the average person who doesn't want to run all these tests, they don't like to geek out on this stuff like you and I do, Chris. They're like, just, I want to get some good data. I want someone to tell me what to do. Uh, I want to be healthy. I want to feel good, right? That's most people. Uh, you would say, don't even bother with the genetic testing. Well, I, I would say it can be useful. I, I did it for, for example, to see whether I am a carrier of uh, uh, APOE4 for Alzheimer's disease. Um, luckily, I'm not. I, I'm a carrier of APOE2 and so on. So Let me I stop you there, though. If, if you were a carrier, how would that change what you do? A lot, because if I would be a carrier, I have like nine to 19 times more risk of Alzheimer's disease. That doesn't mean I will get it but it tremendously increases my risk of Alzheimer's. So I would start to eat very healthy. I but, would follow you, a longevity diet. You wouldn't do that anyways. Even though you're not a carrier, you wouldn't eat healthy and follow a longevity diet regardless of your APOE4? Yeah, well, I would do it anyway, but I would even emphasize that point. more brain health. Yeah, so yeah. I would take that more supplements for brain health, uh, uh, like a specific omega-3 that enters yeah. through the blood-brain barrier, uh, contrary to other omega-3. I would take specific brain health supplements. So and you don't do that already. More on brain health. You don't take um, omega-3s well, and... That's and... a good question. I take specific, uh, let's say, <laughs> fissuro-derived phospholipid-based omega-3s yeah. that can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. So you're right. Yeah. I also do that. No. But if I knew it, I would even focus my, I would even do more my best. So I would Here. do everything I can to yeah. substantially reduce the risk now. Here's my two cents, Chris. Here's what I believe. For everyone listening in that wants to know Ryan's opinion on genetic testing, I think it's a bad idea. And here's why. I think that most people, if they found out that they have a nine to 19 times higher risk of Alzheimer's disease, it's going to mentally fuck them over. They're going to be thinking about it all day. They're going to be like, God damn it. I'm going to get Alzheimer's. This sucks. Poor, poor me. And then it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's such an impactful connection between your mind and your body. And if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I have a likelihood, the doctors, the, the testing said, I'm going to get this disease or that disease. It's more likely to happen. I think it's doing more harm than it is good. And I think that if you are the type of person that's already eating well, that's already taking care of yourself, that's already taking all sorts of preventative measures and nutrients and optimizing your, your wellness. It doesn't matter what the tests say, you're already doing the things that you would do no matter what the test says for the most part. And then when you hear the test data and it tells you all this bad news, 
for some people, there is a small section of people where it might be a wake up call and it might cause them to take action and say like, I don't want to get Alzheimer's. Let me start investigating this and doing what I can. But there's a lot of people who hear that they won't change their diet and they won't take a bunch of other brain supplements. They'll just be like, well, shit, that sucks. I guess I'm just going to go drink and party because I'm going to get it anyways. You know, so that's where I can see it kind of being harmful instead of helpful for a lot of folks, because it is like our, our mentality and mindset around this stuff, man, it, it just plays such an important role. If you look at guys like Dr. Joe Dispenza and the work around our thoughts, actually creating different responses and also outcomes in our physical health. I personally don't want to know what my genome says. I don't want to know if I have an increased risk of Alzheimer's. I'm already acting as if I do so that I'm just taking preventative measures to minimize my risk, no matter what the genome says. Yeah, I can understand that uh, thought of uh, the train of thought. So um, I, I would say um, you're right. For some people, it can make it worse. Uh, other people can it can serve as a wake up call. For others, it can motivate them to do even more to pre prevent it. And for others, uh, it doesn't make a difference because they were already doing a lot of great work in that regard or the best. So I think if, for me uh, as a medical doctor, I'm always uh, of the conviction like. I will just, uh, I, I prefer data and insights, and then I leave it to the patient himself or herself to decide what they do with it. Uh, so, but I'm not going to make the choice for the patient. Like I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell it the patient because the patient won't follow the diet or won't do anything with it or will be scared. I'm yeah. not going to decide that for my patient. I would always inform my patient and then leave it up to the patient uh, what they want to do with it or not. Unless they say, I don't want to know, then yes. I will also respect yes. that. But yeah. I, I think we should not make the choice for other people uh, totally. in that regard. Yeah. But and I it's just about knowing yourself. Saying. Yeah. Knowing yourself so, and knowing like, will I change depending on the data? Am I already doing what I could be doing? Will this get in my head and make things worse or will it motivate me? I think you're right. It all depends on the person and their personality and their mindset around it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I agree, mindset is very important. Uh, we see that stress and uh, can shorten lifespan and, and uh, yeah, increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease and, and heart disease and, and so on. So the, the mind is definitely very important. Uh, but also biology uh, and the microbiome and the epigenome and, and so many other factors. So it's, uh, of course, the, the whole picture. Um, nowadays, we, we are very fortunate. We have never had the opportunity to have so much insights into our health and the ability to eat healthy and exercise and, and get great health care. Um, so I think we should uh, try to uh, interpret it in a way as wisely as possible, because some people are also overwhelmed, uh, like you said, yep. with all the data are scared or worried. Um, so I think it depends also from person to person. You have people who love data, others just don't want to know. And we should respect that. Um, and there are like people with Huntington's disease that runs in family, like we talked about earlier, um, that just don't want to know whether they have 50% chance of, of, of dying of this disease or not. And that's something we, we need to respect. Yeah, absolutely. All right. One more thing for you, Chris. So for my, my guys doing the, the, the biological age bet, um, what supplements would be your top three and you can't choose your own because I already got that on the list. So we got Novos Core is probably one you'd say is one of the top three if you wanted to decelerate or decrease your biological age. I'm sure the second one you'd also say is NMN, nicotinamide mononucleotide. That one's well known in anti-aging. 
if you can't choose those two, what top three supplements would you pick for someone to de to decrease their biological age? Yeah, are you speaking about supplements or like individual ingredients? Because I can supplements. mention- Supplements. Uh, yeah, like if you, if you uh, or... yeah, if there's like a product that's like a multivitamin or if there's a product that has multiple herbs or vitamins in it that you really like, that you're like, this thing is freaking fantastic. Tell me products. I don't need to know the specific ingredients. If there's a stack of ingredients that you like in combination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's a, actually a difficult question. I can talk a lot about the ingredients uh, for optimal epigenetic health. Uh, like I think B vitamins are very important for epigenetic health and there are a lot of B vitamin supplements out there. Um, you also need methyl donors uh, like phosphatidylcholine, uh, which is, I think, a good uh, uh, methyl donor uh, that, that, that donates the little methyl groups that you put on the DNA to silence specific regions. Um, some people, uh, yeah, so, so uh, some people say choline. Uh, often choline is called a forgotten B vitamin. Choline is a complex story. Uh, there are some studies showing that if you take choline, uh, it can be converted by your gut microbiome in, uh, in uh, TMAO, which is uh, perhaps an atherosclerotic substance that can increase your risk of heart disease. But other, on the other hand, uh, I believe a lot of people in the West are deficient in choline, which uh, is very important for epigenetic maintenance. And you have a lot of choline supplements. I would not take choline uh, bitartrate, like most supplements are composed of, but uh, choline uh, chloride or choline citrate. Uh, so, like, so these you, are but you wouldn't use you can buy everywhere. You wouldn't use like an alpha GPC, like an uh, alpha glycerol or phosphatidylcholine. Well, a bit less because some studies show also it can uh, activate cortisol pathways and so on, and, and and some growth factor pathways. And we see in aging a too much activation of growth factor pathways and cortisol accelerates aging. Um, that so I would prefer like phosphatidylcholine, which is actually a great substance not just for epigenetic maintenance but also for a brain health yeah. so uh, i had um, so, yeah uh, i'm a i'm a huge fan of lecithin do you like lecithin for that yeah lecithin is interesting i i also took lecithin for a while now i take phosphatidylcholine and phosphatidylserine and i really think they work much better at least for me and also for well, the, other people so the lecithin granules i use i've been adding this to my smoothie for gosh i don't know how many years um is a combination of a phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine. It does have some other naturally occurring phospholipids, yes. and um, it's just a great, you know, food source of these of these nutrients. Obviously, you have egg yolks, which has a great choline as well. Um, but you don't like just adding like a good quality, like organic non-GMO lecithin. Well, it's definitely a good option, as you said. It contains the the, the two ingredients I discussed, uh, and then many others. Um, but I like phosphatidylcholine as a supplement and phosphatidylserine because very highly dosed. And, uh, and yeah, I really get like uh, the 1,200 milligrams of the phosphatidylcholine. And yeah. um, I would need to eat a lot of lecithin for that. No, sake. no, uh, you, you, take a, you take one tablespoon of my lecithin, Chris. You got about three grams of uh, phosphatidylcholine. It's yeah, either yeah, two, well, and a, two, or two and a half or three. Um, I think it's 2,500 milligrams or 3,000 milligrams. It's, it's a pretty hefty amount for just one tablespoon of lecithin, which is not a lot. Yeah, that would be a lot. But uh, actually, yeah, I, I tried lecithin and I didn't find an effect on my brain health and cognitive performance. Um, then I took phosphatidylcholine as a purified supplement, a highly purified and dosed, and phosphatidylserine. Uh, I really felt the difference. So, and I also hear from other people that switch from lecithin 
uh, to to that kind of service. But everyone is different. So uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you feel great with it, excellent. You can perhaps try out all the supplements. To, uh, that's great. But uh, to come back to your question uh, for epigenetic maintenance, um, and I think also supplements containing alpha-glutarate uh, is very important for uh, epigenetic maintenance. NMN, glycine, um, fisetin also has some epigenetic effects, um, which you can buy as, as a supplement. Um, so yeah, uh, I think this epigenetic, uh, like we discussed, microdose lithium also impacts the epigenome. Um, then you also have zinc, which is important for epigenetic maintenance. Uh, magnesium, it's it also stabilizes DNA, but also helps to uh, improve uh, epigenetic health. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of interesting uh, substances uh, in, in in that regard. Yeah. What do you think of spermidine? Yeah, definitely. It's an interesting substance. So uh, we, we looked already for a very long time into spermidine. Um, it's mostly known as, as an autophagy inducer. So it increases the ability of cells to digest uh, cellular waste that otherwise accumulates during aging. Mm -hmm. It's called autophagy, a cell of digestion. Yep. So cells uh, uh, will break down specific materials so, that so otherwise accumulate. I pronounce it autophagy. Same, same, same thing. Yes, uh, autophagy. So definitely, it, it, but it does other things too. Uh, so it's yeah, not just yeah. an autophagy inducer. It also reduces inflammation. It can improve mitochondrial health. Um, so it's definitely interesting. Um, but I'm always wary of like using one supplement or one ingredient to tackle aging. Uh, so some people say, I take spermidine, I'm good. Or I take NMN, that's good. But aging is very complex. It's, totally. called, by, it's caused by multiple mechanisms. So only taking NMN, only taking spermidine, it's not sufficient. It's like looking at a house that's wearing down, uh, trying to only fix the leaky gutter yeah, yeah. and not repairing the, the leaky basement and the broken windows yep. and uh, uh, windy attic or whatever. Uh, just fixing the gutter is not going to substantially slow down the wearing down of the house. So Great analogy. just taking one ingredient. I think I strongly believe in using synergistic combinations of ingredients that tackle multiple aging mechanisms at the same time. You're talking my language, Chris. You're talking to a guy that takes a lot of supplements. So I, I'm here. I hear you. I, I completely agree. I don't think nutrients work well in isolation. And I don't think there's any reason not to stack as many chips in your, in your corner as you can, um, you know, assuming you can afford it and that, you know, it's something that doesn't overwhelm you. Uh, but, but I love this stuff. So I'm always tinkering with new sub, uh, supplements here, here, are my, my anti-aging stack, just so you, you could be aware. I think, uh, bringing in a product I use called Biogenema. I, I recommend this to a lot of patients. And this is a fantastic blood sugar regulation that has berberine. It's got Genema Silvestre. It's got chromium. It's got all these different herbs that essentially replicate some of the benefits as like a metformin, but in a natural form and just help with glycemic variability. I think that uh, one of my other favorites is systemic enzymes. You ever mess with systemic enzymes, like in higher dosages, like proteolytic enzymes and serapeptase and some of these things that just break down different uh, uh, undigested proteins, as well as uh, perform all sorts of cellular cleanup in the body and uh, really are, in my opinion, a very kind of effective tool that can have a multitude of applications in terms of really helping support the body's natural process. Because as we age, I'm sure you're familiar with the theory that our enzymatic supply and production begins to decline. And that is one of the various contributing factors that causes the DJ, you know, degradation of, of our biology. So I love systemic enzymes for lots of things, anti-aging included. Uh, so those would be top two, two of the ones that I go with. I could go with a million others, but man, 
I freaking love colostrum. I think colostrum is underrated and uh, not ultra high doses because you obviously don't want too many growth factors. But at the same time, I think it's just with the immunoglobulins and some of the polypeptides, whew, I think that that is some good stuff as well. Great, great. Yeah, very interesting. There are definitely some uh, very interesting uh, health supplements there. Um, and I agree with you like uh, regarding the enzymes for digestive health. I think that's definitely an issue. Uh, there are many uh, ways to improve that aspect. Actually, we see a lot of changes in gut health and the microbiome that contribute to aging. Uh, so one of yeah. the reasons, uh, actually it's quite spectacular. Right? If you look at some studies where if you um, replace the gut microbiome of old killifish with uh, the gut microbiome of young killifish, the old killifish live 37% longer. Huh? Um, and uh, we also see in uh, fruit flies that uh, if you give them an antibiotic, uh, old fruit flies that actually kill off the entire gut microbiome, they live much longer. I'm not going to suggest to do that because <laughs> we know that antibiotics actually reduce the diversity in the yeah. gut microbiome. But the yeah. goal of the study was to say like, when these fruit flies get old, they get bacterial overgrowth in the gut. They get selection of uh, toxic and pro-inflammatory bacteria in the gut. And if you just kill all of all the bacteria when they're very old, it extends lifespan really significantly eh, with more than 40% and so on in some cases. And there are also studies in humans eh, where we definitely see that the gut microbiome becomes more pro-inflammatory, more uh, less diversified. The problem is also one of the reasons why we age is stem cell decline. So the stem cells in the gut start to replicate less and maintain gut tissue. So you get a weakened gut wall and you have uh, toxins leaking from the gut into uh, the systemic circulation, causing inflammation. Um, and, Best thing and so to heal on. that. Best thing to heal leaky gut in my clinical experience is colostrum. It works like gangbusters, dude, to, to, to re, uh, essentially resolve some of the um openings in the tight jun junctions in the intestinal wall, uh, colostrum, bovine colostrum. Oh my gosh, works wonders. Um, but on your, on your tangent, you mentioned the digestive enzymes, which I think are very important because that's going to be a great thing for your buck to increase your nutrient absorption. Like you said, lead to better gut health, less fermentation and, um, you know, sitting of your food. So there's better transit time, but what I'm talking about are systemic enzymes. You take them away, away from food. They don't have anything to do with digesting or breaking down food. Uh, you actually would want to take them many hours away from your last meal uh, in order to have the illicit uh, effects that, you know, systemic enzymes are designed for. Um, I'll have to send you some stuff on it. I think you'd find it fascinating. All right, great. Yeah. Great. Um, uh, happy to look further into it. Thank you. Yeah, dude, we've covered some great ground, Chris. I'm going to let you go here, man. I know it's been a little a longer interview than we had uh, initially thought, but we have lots of good, good stuff to, to talk about. So um, in closing, I just want to steer people where they could learn more about your work. So what, what's the best place for people to go if they want to connect with you and, you know, check out your stuff? Yeah, so, well, I have an Instagram account, so Christopher Burke, um, just uh, my name. And uh, um, if you really want to find out more about uh, longevity and health, I've written a couple of books. Uh, one of my books is called The Longevity Code. And it's about uh, food and nutrition to live longer, but also biotechnology to live longer. Because there's also a fascination of mine, what are the best uh, epigenetic and transcriptomic and gene editing therapies and so on to extend lifespan. We are at the uh, beginning of a new era in that regard, where we see the advent of all kinds of fascinating new biotechnologies 
enabling us to live longer, healthier lives and much better treat diseases. So the longevity code is, is one of my books that uh, can be interesting in that regard. And um, you can also check out our website, novoslabs.com. Uh, like I said, it's a platform where we really try to gather all information to live uh, or very good information, science-based uh, information to live longer, healthier lives. So we have uh, articles that everyone can read about what's the best diet for longevity. Um, we created our own diet model around that, that you can download as a poster. We added uh, lists and tips to live longer. And we put a lot of information there regarding supplements, diets, and uh, met taken other ways to improve sleep and metabolism and insulin resistance and, and, and so many other diseases or uh, afflictions to live longer, healthier lives. So that's also a resource that people can check out. Love it, man. I'll put all those links in the show notes of the, your Instagram, your company's website. I recommend people check out your products, this Novos Core. I know I'll be ordering some of that and uh, we'll have to talk offline, Chris, to get set up with some of the early access to these tests. That's what I'm interested in. And once it does become available, I will put it in the show notes um, in a few months from now and update the, uh, the notes. So if you're not listening to this when it first came out, it could be the test is available and ready for you to order. So uh, appreciate the time today, man. This has been awesome. I really uh, love diving into these topics. My pleasure. Thank you for the great questions. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you found it helpful, please share it along to anyone else you believe it can serve. You can submit your own question to be answered on the show by going to ryankennedyhealth.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show. Your feedback helps to support me on my mission to positively impact as many people as possible with this information. Please note the information depicted in this episode is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine.